Welcome to Pep Talks, Pepper Jam's affiliate marketing podcast that takes a deep dive into brands, unique partners, and industry experts. I'm Chrissy Kammerer, Pepper Jam's content strategist, and I'm with my co-host, Pepper Jam's product marketer, Katie Sperkland. Hey, Katie. Hi, Chrissy. So for everyone listening, if you haven't yet, take a beat and subscribe to Pep Talks so that you'll automatically receive updates on our new episodes. And better yet, fire off a review and tell us what you think. Reviews help us to continue to get exciting guests like the one we have today. And joining us today is Alex Kubo. He's Vice President of E-Commerce and Digital Marketing at Burrow. Alex, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate you taking out the time to chat affiliate with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. Great. Now, for listeners who may not know who Burrow is, Alex, or about the great work that you do, can you give us some insight into what sets your brand apart from the others and what makes you unique? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Burrow is a young furniture brand, and we're on a mission to simplify the furniture experience from shopping to shipping to living to moving. Um, we okay. definitely champion a data-driven, customer-first design process to make thoughtful, functional, and beautiful pieces that meet the needs of the modern consumer. Um, and people probably, if they do know about us, know us for our modular Nomad uh, sectional sofa system that mm-hmm. offers over 23,000 standard configurations, um, all of which are crafted in the U.S., get delivered to your door by UPS, um, and easily fit through any door, hallway, elevator, or staircase. That's so important. Um, yeah, but, but more recently, we've actually 5 x uh, our category offering over the past year, expanding into tables, rugs, pillows, and shelves that all embrace that uh, kind of d- design for the modern consumer. Wow. I, I will tell you, Burrow is, is very much eye candy for me. In terms of the furniture, I just, I love that aesthetic. That seems to be right on par with what my style is. Did you say 23,000 configurations? And and those are the only the standard ones. Uh, it's fully customizable, so you can do uh, something crazy if your heart desires. That's insane. That's impressive. You try it all. Um, so Alex, we've heard about Burrow. Let's talk about you. So your background is pretty rich. You got marketing and analytics and even product engineering. So what brought you to Burrow and then ultimately into the affiliate space? Yeah, for sure. This is definitely a, a far fetch from uh, my old days in the oil industry, working offshore and subsea <laughs> projects. Um, but uh, I, I actually joined up with Stephen and Kabir, our two co-founders, uh, to launch the brand out of business school. Um, oh, and wow. what drew me to the opportunity was its inherent practicality and relatability. I think mm-hmm. every, everyone has had an awful experience buying and or moving a sofa and really any furniture for that matter. Absolutely. You know, it's it kind doesn't of fit. Right, exactly. Um, in I my have role, flashbacks even hearing it. I know. Right. It's, it's <laughs> terrible. Um, and if there's any Friends fans listening, um, obviously that's pretty visceral uh, <laughs> memory as well. Um, but, you know, my role at Burrow presented an opportunity to marry my engineering background with my passion for consumer demand gen. Um, mm-hmm. and really use that combo to address a problem that I knew near and dear, having moved every year of the 10 years before business school. Mm-hmm. Um, so so uh, for sure, it was a relatable problem. All right, great. And you just mentioned that you had sort of teamed up with the with two of the, the co-founders. So, mm-hmm. so when you came on with Burrow, was there a strategic marketing plan in place at that time? Um, and when you came in, did you change that? Or how has it changed? Maybe, since yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, 
so I mean, to, you know, to be frank, in the early days, it was it was admittedly really undisciplined. Um, we, we were kind of trying everything at all ends of the funnel, uh, mostly because of a lack of experience doing this and maybe right. uh, admittedly some overconfidence in ourselves to be able to. Um, you know, when we really hit our stride was a few months after launch, actually, when we pulled back on about 90% of what we were doing and got really, really good at a few things. I love um, that. One of those things was architecting a data-driven marketing model that was grounded in disciplined testing and iterative, conservative scaling. And since then, we really matured and expanded our marketing portfolio to help build a brand and foster a customer community to grow lifetime value rather than just focusing on getting the next customer or order. Wow, I love that. I also love the ability to, to realize when you've bitten off more than you can chew, maybe, and it would be better to take a step back focus on what you're going to be really good at and you can accomplish and then later layer in all of those other strategies. Makes yeah, absolutely. Sense. Absolutely. Now, was affiliate marketing a top priority from the start with Burrow? Was it something um, that maybe you sort of were the catalyst for, for adoption there for the channel? You know, it, it, it wasn't. It was kind of like a, a, a default. You know, we know every everybody's doing it, so we should probably check it out. And, and it was kind of in the beginning, it was more of a safe choice. The, the risk wasn't really high, right? From a, from a return standpoint, if you ignore sort of the convolution of the funnel, it's basically a fixed acquisition cost. Mm-hmm. Um, we found over time, though, that it was definitely a channel characteristic of kind of what you put in is what you get out. Um, and the importance of affiliate with our portfolio really grew from weaving it into our overall communication strategy and sort of nurturing it the same way we do with all of our key acquisition channels. Good. I heard key acquisition there. That's really what, how we look at the channel. We look mm-hmm. at it like a, a very strong channel for customer acquisition. You saw the Forrester research that we had just worked on um, just in October that proved that it was, in fact, uh, one of marketers' top three in their arsenal for customer mm-hmm. acquisition. So it, I think maybe that's a lot of things... Katie, you can clarify this too a little bit more, but there's a lot of um, perhaps misunderstandings about the channel. Yes. That's what I was going to say. You know, despite even that data that we've shown and the story that you just shared, Alex, there's ultimately something that's keeping some marketers from embracing the channel fully. So what stigmas do you think exist in affiliate today? So maybe some examples of challenges that you think affiliates up against when it comes to marketers' perception of the channel. Yeah, totally. You, you know, frankly, I think generally the stigma is that it's a tax on the internet or on coverage, um, mm-hmm. or that it's just a means for value destroying coupon sites to leech off of you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in general, it's always easy to think about the worst parts of any channel rather than embrace and strategize for the the unique advantages uh, the channel presents. Um, and and I don't I don't have a great feel for kind of the adoption rate um, of affiliate among marketers today. Um, but I would say that, you know, I know the vast majority of peers that I regularly touch base with are leveraging it heavily. Um, but but as with any channel, it depends on the brand's goals and objectives. And I'd say that about any channel. Just because it seems like everyone else is doing it doesn't mean that you should necessarily. Yep. But what I will say is that affiliates should be a key consideration for any marketer working in a crowded market where social validation and third-party validation plays a significant role. That's actually a great summary of it. And I, I do believe the number of adoption among brands was right at that 82% mark, which which is impressive. But when you flip that over, that means they're still in that 20% mark who may not have, have bought into it yet. Right. Did you find anything, Alex, that surprised you about the channel when you first got in and, and started really 
leveraging partner relationships? Yeah, I think uh, for me, it was the longevity of the assets. You know, we had worked uh, and invested most of our time into building assets for things like paid social and paid search, but um, asset fatigue in those channels is so much more of a real problem. Whereas uh, if you have a credible uh, media outlet standing behind your brand, the longevity of that support and validation uh, is it really multiplied on top of what, um, what social or search will give you. Um, so I think it, it's, it, it's generally the fact that we can see value out of pieces from, for, for, for months and, and potentially years um, in some cases uh, with some of the pieces that yeah. we've gotten. Um, whereas for a social ad, it's there and gone. Um, but affiliate pieces have a long life and continue to hold their weight over time. Yes. I love that emphasis on more of a long tail value that it's not all up front. Um, certainly we, you know, try to try mm-hmm. to tell that story as well. So then um, speaking of those kind of long-term successes or even short-term successes, what in your opinion is the secret sauce when it comes to success in affiliate? You know, for me, I, I don't necessarily would know that there's a secret sauce, but what I would say is that, that what you put in is what you get out. Um, I think building relationships with meaningful, credible publishers is time consuming, but mm. it comes with outsized returns in terms of quality coverage. Um, we, we appointed our head of PR and communications, um, LT, who I know you guys know, uh, to lead our affiliate yeah. program specifically for that reason. Uh, and, and the program has really blossomed since she took it under her wing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's definitely kind of nurturing those relationships and really investing the time and effort and focus into the channel rather than taking sort of a set it and forget it approach. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I know that we had, we mentioned LT who, who has been a wonderful resource for us too. Uh, in fact, we, we did work together to, to tell a, a different story about how to drive quality traffic with sort of the right fit partners and, and how to do that at scale. Um, and I, I do think that affiliate is very effective with that. Having said that, this is sort of a, a reverse question perhaps, but has the experience that Burroughs had in the affiliate channel influenced maybe how you view your presence in other channels, in other paid channels specifically? Is there is there any learnings or, or key sort of points that you you pull into now the way that you look at that mix? Yeah, I think, you know, f- first of all, for us, we're a very highly considered purchase. And so there are several interlaced touch points that a customer uh, consumes before uh, actually making a purchase, right? It's, it's, it's hard to convince somebody to spend $2,000 uh, on a product that they, uh, in most cases, don't get to touch or feel. Right. Um, so it's always important for us to look at our channels as cooperative partners rather than sort of independent acquisition avenues. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what affiliates done is it's really beefed up the valuable validating content that we can also redistribute via paid social um, and deploy mm-hmm. through that channel to the most relevant audiences instead of just creating new assets for every channel. And I think that view has enabled us to find efficiencies in, in both channels. Uh, so whereas we can use affiliate standalone for things like prospecting, lead gen, and, and brand awareness, we can also redistribute that content in a way that works uh, more effectively for lower funnel uh, conversion campaigns run through things like paid social. Yeah, it's a little bit, affiliate's a little bit of a chameleon in that sense, I think. And, and certainly uh, sometimes, Katie and I were just talking about this earlier today, where you don't realize uh, that affiliate has touched 
one of the other channels in some way like that, uh, whether it was through a link or just through, like you're saying, longevity and, and re-promotion pretty much. Mm-hmm. I think you summed that up beautifully. Yeah, agree. And I love the story of repurposing some of that content through other channels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had also mentioned then um, using some of the affiliate content through other channels in order to drive brand awareness. So how good is affiliate at driving brand awareness for Burrow? I don't know if you have a specific example or um, just a story that you can add to that. Yeah, I think I think it's certainly good and it's only getting better. Um, uh, I promise it's not a paid endorsement for affiliate. Um, <laughs> But I, I think as more publishers generally shift their revenue generation strategies towards affiliate, um, it's just your your ability to reach and to tap into publishers that you you may not have ac- had access to in the past is mm-hmm. just is it's sort of breaking down that barrier a little bit and making it easier um, to get in the door. Um, obviously, you still have to invest the time and attention uh, and effort to nurture those relationships. Um, but the, the fact that you have an opportunity to establish it in the first place is something that this channel, um, uh, affords. And, and what I would say is that it's also helped us to grow our, our organic reach, uh, mm. by getting us in the door at a lot of these great media outlets. Um, so, so for both of those things, um, it's, it's definitely helped to drive brand awareness for our company. Yeah. I, it's, you just said something and it sort of struck a chord with me that I, a lot of times I don't think that people, marketers necessarily view um, affiliate as an opportunity to work with a publisher or a publisher type that may have been out of reach in another channel in another paid channel. And mm-hmm. here with that performance model with a pay for outcome type of model and affiliate, they can do that. And that sort of gives them such an edge or, or such an advantage. But, but I don't know a lot of times if that is one of the more obvious uh, pros or one of the obvious, uh, you know, uh, benefits of the channel. So, right. so you're right. Yeah. And to your point, Chrissy, I mean, if we're talking about brand awareness, that's typically more discovery partners, which is what we've focused on being a benefit of the channel. Um, so Alex, do you think it's fair to classify affiliate as a last click channel? You know, I think generally the people who think this way are, are the ones who are more or less setting and forgetting the channel. You know, last click mm-hmm. on sites are going to be more aggressive about getting into your program because their lift once they're in is pretty low, right? They, they just list you and scrape some codes. Mm-hmm. Um, the brands that are really actively integrating affiliate into their communication strategy and building relationships with quality publishers, they're the ones that really understand how to use it effectively as a prospecting and awareness tool. Yeah, I would agree with that. And that makes me think a little bit too about um i'm I'm thinking as we're as we're talking i'm going through the evolution of the channel in in my head over time uh between those two and that is part of that perception right about the channel that it it is a last click channel or it's a coupon channel or it's a discount channel perhaps might even be a good way to say that but in a macro level sense say over the last five years alex what do you think is the most profound change or evolution that's happened in the channel? Um, I think it's definitely the shift of major publishers sort of embracing it as a core part of the revenue strategy um, as they've sort of diversified how they make money. Um, I think in the early days, affiliate for us and for many brands meant partnering with like bloggers. Um, Mm. And that just takes, you know, the the benefits are just not as outsized as uh, some of these bigger media outlets. Um, that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're working with a small publisher, 
there's the additional obstacle of educating the consumer about who that blogger is versus just knowing right. and recognizing that that media name and then uh, uh, listening to what they have to say. Um, but nowadays, instead of bloggers, we're talking about coverage in Business Insider, BuzzFeed, Apartment Therapy. Um, uh, and those are names that are meaningful to our target market. Sure. Uh, you know, whether or not every person in the country finds it to be a credible source, uh, uh, the, the name carries weight. And it's, it's easier to get in front of somebody and to get them to pay attention uh, if, you, if you have that weight. Yeah. I would definitely agree with that. And I think... I think there there is a certain power and also a certain amount element of surprise when when you hear names like CNN Digital and mm-hmm. Department Therapy and Vox, BuzzFeed, and those sort of names, and then affiliate in that same sort of category, um, which I think is a testament to how far the channels come in terms of content becoming a a mainstay or 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 the meat sort of on the plate. Right. Uh, so that is really. Really interesting, and um, Katie, I know you wanted to. You, you were curious before too about about the measurement of success, what that looks like. Yeah, so I think that we're talking a lot about content partners, and you've also mentioned, um, you know, about coupon partners and getting some loyalty partners. Essentially, the importance of a diversified portfolio, um, and so all those different kinds of partners bring different value to the portfolio. There's a lot to look at for what affiliate can offer. Um, so, Alex, how do you measure success in affiliate um, and the bigger picture? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think, you know, certainly service level metrics like return on ad spend are, are front and center. Um, but we also create uh, performance indices that sort of compute traffic quality through a collection of, of upstream metrics, uh, including things like site engagement, mid-funnel shopping behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually the same index system that we use across all of our prospecting channels. And it's kind of a, a mentality and an approach that we've had to develop as we've continued to learn about uh, the length and the complexity of the shopper's journey for a product like a, a $2,000 sofa um, and that, again, somebody's not you know touching and feeling in, mo- in most scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've had to try to find a way to qualify upstream efforts um, just as much as we qualify conversion-driven uh, campaigns. Um, and so again, it's, it's, it's a combination of both. What is our absolute return on this channel? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then in addition, it's, it's acknowledging that, that it, it may not be the last click, that it may be a traffic gen source mm-hmm. and in which case we need to qualify that traffic and understand, and understand what the quality is. And so that's where we leverage those performance indices, uh, uh to find that information. Right. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. And, and that makes me think of, of yet another, perhaps, um, not necessarily stigma, Alex, I don't mean it that way, but I think in affiliate, some of the the hesitancy to adopt the channel is how marketers are going to measure its incremental impact on its overall sort of digital portfolio. Um, do you have, or I should say, is there a way that you integrate that affiliate data into some sort of reporting source of truth so you can actually see how affiliate performs versus the other channels? There definitely is. I think like our approach to attribution in general is is probably to some people surprisingly lax um, in that <laughs> we we try to take a step back and acknowledge sort of marketing 101 where mm-hmm. we're, we're also 
you know, heavily invested in channels like podcast where Mm -hmm. we're not going to get sort of that one-to-one signal, right? It's not like a click in a session uh, Mm -hmm. with strings or something like that. And so if we leaned too heavily into uh, digitally data-driven attribution and didn't pick our heads up out of the ground and kind of look around and understand how the whole funnel is, is working, we'd probably say, you know, podcast is a bad channel. Like we're not getting that many promo code redemptions and we, you know, we shouldn't be invested in this. Um, but it's a little bit about taking a step back and again, measuring uh, success at different parts of the funnel and understanding how different channels and different initiatives play into that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're definitely looking at, at affiliate as, as a, a key part of that, at that funnel. And, and as I mentioned before, in a couple of different examples, um, at, at, at really both ends of the, of the, of the funnel, um, but just measuring that success slightly differently and, and, and that incrementality slightly differently, um, based on the quality of the traffic that we're sending in. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so then if you're looking at that traffic from a bigger picture, you know, what, um, what partners would you say that you work best with? Um, I would say, you know, for sure it's, it's reputable publishers. I think when I, the, the first names that come to mind are, are New York mag, uh, apartment therapy, um, mm-hmm. et cetera. It's, it's really just quality content that you're proud of and, and you can repurpose. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of brands today are hypersensitive as they should be to, uh, their brand standing and mm-hmm. maintaining brand standards. And I think when you're, you're repurposing third-party content, you have to hold that content to, to really high standards and not just the wording and not just the message in that particular piece, but also the, the, the brand name behind that media outlet. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you want your brand to be, to be associated with? Um, and so while like, while, uh, like loyalty sites and coupon sites, like they'll still, still drive a lot of revenue, but it's not something that, you know, we're not going to go and, and, say, Hey, check us out. We're on Rakuten. You know, we're, we're, we're going to repurpose those pieces that lend credibility to the brand. Um, and so that's where we've, we've definitely invested the most amount of time in terms of building relationships and getting uh, constant, consistent and high quality coverage. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And then, so that would be some of the larger content partners. Um, but how does influencer marketing fit into your mix today? Um, have you had a lot of success with influencer campaigns or, um, what do those campaigns look like? Yeah. You're, you're rubbing on a sore subject for me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I, I would say it does to an extent. Um, First of all, uh, I, I, I kind of hate the idea of what most people think of as influencers. Um, I think, mm-hmm. you know, being able to take pretty pictures does not mean that you're actually influencing someone's wallet. <laughs> uh, and honestly, I, I think it's laughable how much VC money, venture capital money is, is now in the pockets of social media accounts with high follower accounts, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that never generated a return. Mm-hmm. Um, so we definitely don't look at, quote unquote, influencer marketing as a means for acquisition. However... Um, we do instead look at it as a means for content creation. Um, example of that is uh, we recently partnered with an interior designer who was redesigning her home um, and invested a lot of time and attention into educating that person about our brand and our products, uh, sending her a lot of products to work with, working through the design process with her. 
And out of that, we got a ton of great assets that we could mm-hmm. use throughout our site and campaigns um, rather than produce a $20,000 photo shoot ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, when you think about like on an asset generation economic standpoint, you know, on that alone, it, it was a win. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And also, I think you did touch on a really, really good point, which we also find to be true, that it's more, it's not necessarily about the mega influencers or the size of, of the influencer, because they're usually not as attributable to, to that impact, I would say, as more of a, a smaller and niche or a nano influencer might be, who has a, a considerably more targeted audience from the beginning. So it's less about fishing around in, in this, this giant chasm of, of audience reach. It's about getting the right audience. And yeah, for, for sure. Uh, and, and I think like if you think about it, sort of a relationship between follower counts and, you know, incremental influence, like I, I tend to think the more followers you have on, on like an Instagram profile, for example, the less influence you have over that incremental next user. Uh, mm. next follower that that you you bring in um like i think about my immediate fr- immediate friend network and i can obviously you know go and talk to them uh about products that i'm loving and they will immediately go and look at it and likely buy it themselves um you know but if i just post randomly on linkedin about something uh i'm not going to get that same response right <laughs> that's right yeah that's that's definitely true it was an interesting perspective for sure. Um, so shifting gears, um, 2020 certainly brought its fair share of obstacles and challenges. Not sure if you heard. Why? Um, why? What happened in 2020? <laughs> we only have a brief time. I can't do a full recap. Um, <laughs> so um, just wondering uh, for you guys, was there a significant adjustment in your ad spend strategy over the past several months? Uh, for sure. Um, you know, we've, we've definitely been playing it close to the chest and, and reweighting our portfolio heavily in the direction of more agile channels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so not investing in like more long-term, uh, campaigns, more of things that we have tighter control over and can adjust to, um, right. you know, the past few months we've seen our digitally native brand really soar as, as e-commerce has taken off. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also sensitive to the fact that, that no one knows when this inevitable shift back is going to hit. And Great so point. cash, cash is king for us. And so, you know, if, 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 if something terrible happens, if, 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 uh, beyond all of the terrible stuff that's already happening, right. Um, and, and sort of the pendulum swings in, in the other direction, we want to make sure that we're positioned well to respond as rapidly, uh, as possible. Right. And as a second part um, to that question, um, do you think that there, I mean, this could be difficult to see while we're still in the thick of it, but um, do you think there's been changes that you've made to your strategy or spend that you plan to carry long term? Uh, Definitely. I think from a strategic standpoint, um, how we view our customer has changed uh, slightly. We we have valued and, and placed a huge priority over understanding our core customer. Um, but over the last few months, we've definitely prioritized learning about our new customer. And that's like the traditionally retail first shopper um, that's now forced to shop online. Mm. Uh, and how we message to them, what resources we provide them, what channels we reach them on, it's all been a flood of new information and learnings that will have both uh, you know immediate and long-term returns. They're definitely the customer that we've always intended to reach as mm-hmm. our brand 
has kind of grown beyond uh, this, what I'll call early adoption phase. Yeah. Um, but it's one that we've never really put an earnest focus on acquiring until right now when this sort of opportunity uh, presented itself. It's actually super insightful. And that has me thinking separate necessarily from um, the, the, the ad strategy, relearning your customer during mm-hmm. a time like this, I think is, yep. it's such a, an aha or an epiphany moment. Uh, has that experience or has the consumer, what's the feedback loop when it comes to designing new products? How much emphasis goes into customer feedback and customer requests? What, is that, what does that look like? Yeah, you know, first of all, I think I think you, you brought up a good point, which is that um, even like e- even if this is the same person that I'm talking to that I that I sold to six, 12 months ago, their life has changed so dramatically over the last six months, I'll call it, um, that even the way that you're talking to that same person has to adapt. Um, and so you have to have that constant feedback, feedback loop, that constant source of research and information that tells you that even though you, you, you thought you knew so much about this person, uh, that their entire life has, has taken a dramatic turn, um, either in a positive or a negative or a mix. Um, but it's definitely changed. Everyone's been impacted. Um, but when, when, when we think about sort of product development, keeping an eye on the future rather than just uh, uh, responding to the present, uh, Burrow at, at its core is, is a customer-driven brand. And we use several means to understand the needs and wants of the customer through reviews, surveys, net promoter score, and our honestly most powerful asset, which is our insanely talented customer experience team who are working around the clock to make both the customer happy mm-hmm. and also share really rich data sets and anecdotes back to us. Right. Um, you know, we have a weekly report out readout from the head of our CX team uh, on on these amazing anecdotal stories that help color in all the space between the lines that we never get to see if we're just looking at reports um, and and numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, by the way, is where I I love to live. But I've I've learned over the last few years to really embrace a lot of those anecdotes, even though my my body starts shaking because it's not. <laughs> uh, it it definitely adds a a personality to the information and helps you understand it and digest it in a way that you just wouldn't be able to if you were just working in an Excel workbook. I love the way you put that. As a Burrow brand fan, that makes me love the brand even more, <laughs> knowing that. So kudos, great job. Appreciate For sure. it. <laughs> um, so we have a lot of great things that we covered here about you know the state of affiliate and how you got into it and where you came from. What about a future prediction? Uh, what marketing predictions do you have for the future of affiliate and where do you see affiliate in five years? Ooh, this is a fun one. Um, <laughs> you know, whereas like 10 or 15 years ago, publishers and blogs weren't really popping up nearly as frequently as they are today. Right. Um, and also how a lot of them were really reliant on, on I'll call now archaic display ads to generate revenue. Um, nowadays, there are so many great tools and mediums to build an audience and content curation has become so important um, and in some ways hazardous, but that's definitely a topic for another day. Um, <laughs> <I do. laughs> Uh, as, as these sort of budding publishers look to monetize, I think more and more of them will look at affiliate as the primary means to do that. 
and that in turn means more affiliate real estates for brands to play in. Um, so I think the channel only has room to grow. Um, personally, I'd also love to see affiliate technology continue to improve and help show a more complete picture of how the program plays different roles for different brands and different parts of the funnel. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, we've talked about a couple times here about stigmas and misperceptions. And I think in, generally, in my experience, the way to disprove those or to get somebody to understand is to really connect the data points in a meaningful and tangible way. Agreed. Um, and, and only as technology continues to improve will, will we be able to do that. Um, and so I think there's definitely a lot of room um, for technology uh, to improve in general. And, and then furthermore, I think it's expanding its domain to currently you know, less trackable channels, such as broadcast, to help enrich our data sets. Um, so then in turn, paint a much clearer picture of holistic attribution and incrementality like we were talking about earlier. I mean, one can dream, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's ex- But you're exactly... You're exactly right, and and I think we we have a sort of an unofficial motto, which is always let data be your guide, let data tell yeah. the story, let data drive all those decisions, because that is where the the story is, right? That's where you where you pick up those details. Well, it sounds like you plagiarized that from me, so <laughs> I hope it's not copyrighted. <laughs> all right, we're going to switch gears completely now, Alex. So we're going to move that. One quick question before we oh, do that. Yeah. Um, we just need to let the audience know where can people find you? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, if you want to see my work and my passion, all you have to do is head to burrow.com. Um, but otherwise, you can find me on LinkedIn, Alex Kuba at Burrow. Okay, cool. I didn't want to miss the opportunity to put that in there so that if people wanted to connect with you afterwards. Of course, yeah. that's completely important. Uh, so here comes lightning round. These are off-the-cuff okay. questions. Um, first thing that comes to your mind, if you really don't have an answer, just say pass. I'll move on to the next one. Okay. What was the last song you listened to? Oh, gosh. Uh, I honestly don't know. I literally just put on Discover Weekly every morning on Spotify (laughs) and let it run in the background. (laughs) That's fair because I do the same. Uh, What's your favorite word? Oh, it has to be. Uh, statistically significant, which is cheating because it's two, but that's okay. It's a phrase. I'll accept it. (laughs) What is your least favorite word? Uh, Influencer. (laughs) Subject, there it is. Uh, What's something about you that we could not learn from a Google search? Uh, Something that you could not learn about me from a Google search. Um, Probably my passion for football and real football, uh, meaning Manchester United. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's listed anywhere, but it's it's currently both a heartwarming and a heartbreaking uh, that I have. Yes, I agree with that 100%. That's an interesting fact. I did not know that either. Uh, what is your favorite quote? Mm. Uh I think it, it, this is a cop-out, but I'm going to take the one that I put in my eighth grade yearbook, which is nice. a day without laughter is a day wasted. I uh, love that. I think you absolutely have to keep things light. Don't take life too seriously because um, the more you get into the weeds and the more, the, you know, the more focused you are on the problems, the less you can see the opportunities. You sound like an incredibly insightful 13-year-old, by the way. So that's, that's really good. <laughs> All right. Stay-at-home orders, not so bad or trapped in hell. 
Uh, well, it's interesting. So right now I'm actually uh, living at my in-laws because uh, my wife and I, we have a 18-month-old and we're living in an apartment in obviously a city. Right. Uh, not a great environment for an 18-month-old to be uh, uh, running around in. Um, so we, we sort of flew the coop and, and are holed up here. Um, and coincidentally, uh, uh, my wife's brother just closed on a new house that didn't quite overlap with their selling their old one. So they're here too. Oh, uh, so, full so, house. Yeah. so politically you need to say not so uh, right, exactly, exactly. Uh, but, but it's, it's definitely been a learning experience. Wow. Uh, for sure. That's incredible. It's a character building. It's a character builder. Yes, yeah. definitely. Who would you want to have dinner with most, dead or alive? Oh, gosh. Um, probably Alex Ferguson. Uh, I think uh, going back to my my uh, Manchester United um, addiction, I wow. think that from, from someone's ability to lead and corral a group of super high performers, I think there's probably so much to learn from him on a, on a personal and professional level. Uh, I'm fortunate that he's he, he is still alive, and so you know, never say never. Maybe he's uh, listening. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, but for sure, I think that that would be kind of a dream come true. No, well, that's excellent, and that does in fact solidify and confirm <laughs> <laughs> what Google could not tell us. Yes, exactly. Uh, would you rather ask for permission or forgiveness? Forgiveness. All right. Definitely. I think. I think you know uh, if you wait on permission, I think you're just, you're, you're losing opportunity. Um, and I think you definitely have to have to push the bounds. That's where innovation comes from is living on, on the edge is taking risks is, is, uh, uh not playing by the rules necessarily or convention. Mm -hmm. It's kind of challenging convention in everything you do. And, uh, if you're the type of person, in, in my opinion, at least that, um, has to require somebody else's guidance or permission, as you put it, uh, to, to go and take that risk. I think that you are, you are unfortunately not going to the person, be the person that unlocks that next step. I agree with that a hundred percent. Okay. Who'd you rather 2019 or 2020? <laughs> uh, it's an interesting question. I, can I tell you on uh, the second week of November? A hundred percent. <laughs> we will definitely do a part two of this. Okay. Uh, next question is, is, is one that we, we're just curious about. How many of the configurations have you tried with the furniture? Oh, well, so I actually have a, a four-seater with chaise and ottoman and an armchair uh, in my apartment. Actually, right now it's in a storage unit because I flew the coop, but uh, <laughs> uh, packed away very nicely and neatly and very easy to disassemble. Uh, let's just say that. Um, but uh, I think we've tried three or four in our own apartment, um, which a lot of people don't realize when they're shopping is that, you know, you're not just buying something that you have to leave it how it is. You can completely reconfigure it into almost anything. Um, mm -hmm. And so we've done like a whole five seater uh, from family is coming over for a movie night or something. Uh, we've broken it down to a sofa and a love seat where my wife and I are just not getting along. Uh, <laughs> and then, Oh, we have to set up the armchair for when uh, father-in-law is coming over. Oh, yeah. Definitely with the armchair. So That's you've got at least 2,200 plus to go. I know. I know. i got to work uh, That's right. All right. Last one. What's your go-to cocktail? 
Oh man, I'm going to be laughed at really bad for this, but it is definitely a Tito's and club soda. I am such a wimp when it comes to cocktails and I just like something to get the job done without any fuss. And, no, wimps uh, stand united then. Uh, I emphatically agree with that statement. I, why go all out and make it any crazier than it has to be when you have a perfect drink with Tito's and club soda? Efficiency, right? It's efficiency. That's right. No one's got time. I don't have this kind of time. Alex Kubo, VP of e-commerce and digital marketing at Burrow. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a great conversation. I learned a lot about you, about Burrow, um, about affiliate in general. I think we, we discussed a lot of things. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, happy to chat anytime. All right. Take care. We just spoke with Alex Kubo, Vice President of Commerce and Digital Marketing at Burrow, about how putting the consumer at the center of the entire experience and affiliates' acute ability to acquire new customers work together and complement each other, as well as how affiliate plays so well for marketers who prize both social validation and third-party validation. You can check out the full podcast, plus many more, by visiting us at pepperjam.com slash podcasts.